I have come upon the following story more than once over the years. During World War II, a Marine was serving in the South Pacific. His platoon was under fire, and they were trying to signal their comrades that they had taken a certain hill. Their sergeant ordered uh, a man to take the American flag, raise it up on the pole to let other units know this news. As he grabbed the flag and ran off to raise it up, he was shot by a sniper. Another man was sent to retrieve the flag and to raise it up. He too was shot. Finally, a young private stood up and said, Sergeant, in just a few minutes, it will be four o'clock. If you let me wait until then, I will take this flag and raise it up that pole. The sergeant thought for a moment and agreed to this. At four o'clock, the private jumped out of his foxhole, ran over, picked up the flag, ran to the pole and raised it up. He then turned and ran back to his unit without even a scratch on him. And the men cheered and the sergeant asked him, why was it that he wanted to wait until four o'clock to do what he did? The private replied, well, sir, it's four o'clock here, but it is 6 a.m. back home in Kansas. My mother loves Jesus and she told me that every morning at 6 a.m. she would lift up my, my safety in prayer and that she would pray for all of us. I knew that I would be safe when mama touched heaven for me. Now, I don't know if that's a true story. I could not find a primary source. And it sounds suspiciously what we might call glurge, really feel-good stories that are more or less urban legends. There's a couple of things in there, too, that don't quite match up with what I know about World War II. And I don't know a ton, but there are a couple of red flags. And yet, theologically, spiritually speaking, I do not find it hard to believe in the least. Especially not compared to, say our text for today here in Exodus chapter 17. Because this is a passage which gives us essentially the same message, but in a much more kind of uh, amazing and hard to grasp way. It's the story of one person holding up holy hands to heaven, praying for other people who are in the midst of battle. And in both cases, you could read the story two different ways. First of all, you could read it from a kind of psychological effect point of view. That just knowing that someone is praying, just seeing Moses and his companions up on that hill calling out to God emboldened the troops. Just like knowing his mother was back in Kansas praying for his safety emboldened that private, causing them to, to act decisively and confidently and therefore to win the day. I don't know that I buy into that. I think that in hand-to-hand -hand combat in, amongst the Amalekites and the Israelites, it's unlikely that they were all keeping one eye up on the mountaintop saying, are, are Moses' arms starting to droop or not? The other way to take it is simply as a miracle, that God heard these prayers and answered them. Or I suppose we could take it as kind of a combination of both. And I think that may be the best way to look at things. We all know who was fighting in World War II, but here in Exodus 17, the battle is with the Amalekites. You may not be familiar with the Amalekites because nobody is. We don't know much about them at all. I'll tell you the basically the sum total of what we know. They were descendants of Esau. Remember, there was Jacob and Esau. They were twin brothers, and they were kind of, even from before they were born, contending with one another. Jacob, through cunning and confidence games, kind of snaked out from under him, uh, Esau's birthright and his blessing, and there was some bad blood, and it continued on even though they sort of made peace. So these descendants of Esau 
for them, hating Israel is kind of part of the fabric of who they are. Also, you should know they were semi-nomadic people who gained most of their wealth by going out and raiding traveling parties and smaller settlements and plundering whatever they would take. And so in this moment here, as the Israelites, who have just recently escaped Egypt after God brought all of the plagues and then brought them out through this magnificent, miraculous deliverance, and who are now weighed down by all this travel through the wilderness, by centuries of having been enslaved, and also weighed down by lots and lots of Egyptian treasures and gold, presented for the Amalekites kind of a double opportunity. They looked and said, we can get some revenge and we can get some booty here, which is always on the mind of the plundering nomad. And we also know from Deuteronomy 25 that while this battle is a traditional battle and it takes place at Rephidim, that before that the Amalekites, who did not fear God, according to Deuteronomy 25, had come down and begun picking off people, stragglers, cutting off the back of the procession from the rest of the people and, and in a, a kind of death by inches, just taking and taking and conquering. And finally, Moses said, this isn't going to be how we do things. Tomorrow morning, we are going to fight the Amalekites. The story that we heard, of course, is that as Moses raised up his staff over his head, as long as he held it high, his hands were aloft, the Israelites would win. As soon as it began to fall and come down, the tide of the battle would turn and the Amalekites would win. Now, I want to make sure you recognize that there was nothing magic about this staff. You know, I think about Gandalf and stuff. He's got this cool staff that can zap people, that can light up dark caves and all these. This is not a magic staff that we're reading about in Scripture. It was just an object that would always be with Moses. And so God used it as a way to display his power. You're going to have your staff with you, and so I will do miracles through it. It's kind of like the ancient Near East equivalent of a cell phone, only the staff didn't kind of make life super annoying all the time. So he used that staff to convince Pharaoh and his magicians that there was something to these claims, that you better let my people go, to get their attention. This is the staff that turned into a snake. This is the staff that he held aloft over the Red Sea and caused it to part. And maybe you're thinking, Pastor, bring it back a little. Don't talk about this weird stuff. Okay, I told my, my co-worker at church to watch the live stream this week, and I don't want them to think that we're, we're weird. Guys, we are, right? We are weird. We believe in these stories from the scriptures, or what is this all about? It's exactly this sort of backing away from the notion of the miraculous that we see today, even amongst Christians, that leads to weak, sluggish, feeble prayer lives. This was the staff that became known as the staff of God because of all the miraculous things done through it. And it became a symbol of God's mighty work through this frail human being. So in this moment, when he holds it up, far from being some arbitrary ritual involving some talisman of some kind, this is a visual lesson for Israel as they're about to enter into the conquest. They're now between their deliverance from Egypt and their conquest of the Holy Land, and God wants to show them in no uncertain terms that neither of those things will have been by their own strength. Rather, these are things that God is doing in their midst, for them and through them. 
The lesson here for the Israelites is that in life, in battle, in everything, you are to completely rely on God and look to Him for deliverance. Not to yourselves, not to your wisdom, not to your might, not to your horses and chariots and swords and bows and all of the rest. But what can we learn from this text? I believe the clearest line between that display on that mountain in Rephidim and our lives today in 21st century America is that prayer and intercession have a direct effect on our lives here on earth, on the unfolding of events here on earth. As Moses' hands were lifted up to heaven, the people had success. As they were not, the people did not have success. They began to struggle. They began to flag. I see that as a pretty unambiguous picture for those of us who follow God. Granted, this is not some kind of blank check promise because this is not just some random undertaking that these people are trying to accomplish This is particularly part of the covenant and something that God commanded them to do. Go and lay waste to that army and that city and take it for yourself because I am using you as a a, uh, uh, conduit for my judgment upon these people. Also, I am using it as a way to fulfill my promise to Abraham that his many successors, his many descendants would have a beautiful land flowing with milk and honey. So we don't want to take this as some word, faith, name it and claim it, health and wealth heresy, that whatever I ask God for, as long as I pray about it, he has to give it to me. That The people who believe that wind up very miserable and often chucking the faith altogether because the promise doesn't pan out. You know, I, I came up with this idea where you, you come and, and you, you make your own pizza blindfolded and then we cook it and feed it to you and it's going to be this huge business. I know it's going to succeed because I prayed for it. Mm, Not so much. This is something very unique going on in Israel amongst God's people. And we need to remember that we don't have a, a equivalent conquest in our lives. It might feel like we are doing the right thing. But even when we're quite sure that what we're doing is correct and is what God would have us do, we're not in exactly the same position as Moses and the people of Israel were in Rephidim. However... If you don't lift up your hands in prayer and bathe your efforts in prayer and come to God at length about everything you do, everything you put your hand to, and then it fails, you cannot exactly complain that you did not succeed in this particular battle or venture. If we don't come to him in prayer, we can't say, God, why didn't you help me to succeed? That seems to be a truism to me, but many Christians don't live it out. And I would point out that there are many things that constitute the Christian life that are a direct obeying of commands from God as part of a covenant with his people, the church. And those things we can pray back to him, holding our hands up, saying to him, Lord, you've promised that if we go out and make disciples of all nations. We call this the Great Commission. Or in Luke, it's, it's phrased this way, to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins to all peoples, teaching them what Jesus commanded, baptizing them, making disciples, that that is how you will bring your name to the end of the earth and bring glory to yourself. 
As we do this, as we try to carry it out, I see again and again churches, especially in America, where we continue to be comfortable as the church, even in the times that we would uh, you know, grouse about and complain are, are difficult, we, we say, Lord, we tried, right? We tried and it didn't work. We tried having some kind of outreach. People didn't care. I tried talking to my coworker about Jesus. It was a gong show. It was a disaster. No one really wants to hear about this sort of thing these days. You think fighting Amalekites was easy? It's difficult to follow God. It's difficult to fulfill his commandments and to take up our end of the covenant. And yet we are commanded to do it. And we see that sometimes our success begins to flag. And when that happens is the time to raise up holy hands in prayer. Spurgeon said, learn, O pleading saint, to hold up the promise and the oath of God before him. The Lord cannot deny his own declarations. Hold up the rod of promise and have what you will. And I would ask somebody who, who said, I've tried to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins to a friend or a family member or, or whoever, and it, you know, it just didn't work. I don't, I don't know if this is something that, that translates very well into 2020. How much time did you spend in prayer around these things that are so central to the covenant of God? Ten hours? Ten minutes? Two minutes? No minutes? Just a real quick, okay, God, here I go. I'm going to jump. You better catch me. As I recall, that's what Satan tried to get Jesus to do at the pinnacle of the temple. There's no doubt in my mind that the spiritual drought we're seeing in the West is at least in part a result of our lack of prayer in the church, which is itself a result of our weak view of prayer in the church. That prayer is something I do for me, to center me, to make me feel better or to make me ready to take on the day. There's, that, 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 this is just something, some exercise, not unlike meditation or, or listening to uh, ASMR sounds on my phone or something that, that help me to, to feel better. And then it becomes optional immediately. After all, hey, you can't change God's mind, but your, your prayers can change your mind. And, and we say that to ourselves. And we can say, yeah, that kind of makes sense. But then our subconscious says, but you don't have time for that. If it's just some kind of Jedi nonsense, what is the point of spending extended periods of time in prayer? And surely, yes, living a life of prayer does change who you are. But prayer also changes what God will do. I'm going to say that again. Prayer changes what God will do. I know this because he has promised it. I also know it because we see it again and again and again in Scripture. And I'll tell you what, if you hear this from me, you can be pretty sure it's true because I'm not giving in to my biases. I'm kind of pushing against them. I'm a Calvinist, which means I believe God's will is sovereign. Everything that happens, God and his sovereign will has decreed to the point where we, Calvinists, talk about predestination and people having been elected from before the foundation of the earth. And when we do that, we're just taking stuff from the Bible word from word, but we, we emphasize these things. And yet I'm here telling you that in his sovereign will, God has determined to answer the prayers of his people. And when you pray, he will hear you. And he will move his strong right hand. And maybe these are the two sides of prayer, right? It changes us. 
and it changes circumstances. Like with the young man who was willing to run into danger and raise that flag because prayer had changed him, and yet he made it back safely as an answer to his prayer and his mother's prayer. I think we get a little insight into what this event is all about and what we should learn from it in verse 15 in kind of the conclusion here. After the battle is over and Joshua has routed the enemy and utterly blotted out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. If you've ever done a study of the different names of God, which for a while there were, were all the rage, this one is Jehovah Nissi or Yahweh Nissi. The Lord is my banner. Banner here refers to a standard or a signal pole that you would raise up high. In antiquity, armies would set up a pole for marshalling troops or announcing vital information and to encourage the soldiers. It's still there, like when you sing the Star Spangled Banner. And Francis Scott Key kept looking back up and saying, the flag was still there. Every time there was an explosion, I could see the flag was still there, even though I'd been captured. Even though it, it was looking bleak, the flag was still there. And, and these standards and banners would be raised up to encourage the soldiers and remind them who they're fighting for. And it was normally up on a hill for everyone to be able to see rather easily. And so, at least in part, Moses was acting as the standard bearer of Israel, holding up this symbol of God's mighty power, even as his own frail human arms began to weaken and fail. They saw the power of God in that, and they saw the finite strength of humans all at once. And both of those things are a reminder that we all need each and every day. John Calvin wrote, we did not find that Joshua's hands were heavy in fighting, but Moses' hands were heavy in praying. The more spiritual any service is, the more apt we are to fail and flag in it. The hand of Moses did more for their safety than their own hands, his rod than their sword. And as we go through our lives, we, we often undertake very difficult things, and we say, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this, and we go to pray for them, and we find that that is a little heavier than actually doing it. But it's important. It's vital. If we see anything here, that's what we see. That if we don't take the time to raise up our hands before heaven and ask God to bless what we are doing, that we may as well not begin the work to begin with. As the church has become more and more pragmatic, Prayer has become more and more a backseat optional add-on. Prayer meetings have become incredibly uncommon, and when they happen, poorly attended. And the enemy loves this just as much as the Amalekites would have loved to see Moses just say, forget it, toss his staff and sit down and take a nap. The Amalekites were nomads who freely wandered all over the territory that God had promised to Israel. And they thought, if we can get in here and just nip this in the bud, that will be a good thing. Save us some trouble later. This reminds me an awful lot of our enemy. In 1 Peter 5, St. Peter writes, Be sober, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. We're often overwhelmed by the weight of these things that we undertake in this life, whether it's work whether it's raising kids, whether it's even just dealing with the realities of living in 2020. 
In all of this, our own frailty is hard to overstate. Do, doing work up above your head like that is often hard, right? When, when Moses is holding that staff up, you know the staff doesn't weigh very much. And yet, I remember a time, uh, we moved some rooms around in our house a couple years ago, and part of that was moving light fixtures around. Some of them were kind of heavy, some of them weren't. But no matter what the case, when you stand there like this for a while, your arms just start to ache and they get heavy and they get kind of, you know, oxygen deprived. And you go, ah, and it gets harder and harder to hold them up. And that's what we see happening here. It wasn't even that the task itself was overly heavy. The staff was light. It was just that he could not carry it on continually. But remember that, well, our arms struggle to hold up even what amounts to a stick, that God's arms are mighty. In fact, the Bible keeps on reminding us of that. A mighty hand and an outstretched arm. God's arm is not too short to save. Psalm 89, you have a mighty arm strong as your hand. With your right hand, you save us. Jeremiah 32, you brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and outstretched arm, and with great terror. But if we even weary in our prayers for God's help, like Moses did. And let's face it, Moses is a really godly man and a pretty high bar, pun intended, for us to clear. Then how can it even help us that God is mighty? Yes, God was mighty on that day, but it was Moses' weakness that caused him to begin to fall and caused the army to begin to lose. That's where Aaron and Hur come into play. He had two companions with him. He anticipated this. He said, I can't do this alone. I need to have my guys with me. He had appointed Joshua. This is the first reference to Joshua in the Bible, by the way. We find out this guy is now entering into battle. He'd proved himself. He's one of the greatest military people of all time. But then also up on the hill are these two equally, if not more important men, Aaron and Hur, who have one job, and that is to hold Moses up. Well, he holds the people up in prayer. And we all need, from time to time, people to hold us up. You know, there are so many reasons why we might try and bear all our burdens alone. We might say to ourselves, oh, I've been kind of hopeless and depressed lately, or, or I'm just so scared and I don't know why, but as a Christian, I'm supposed to have a spirit of boldness and, and project this image of victorious living, so maybe I just kind of keep it you know, close to the vest, I keep it on the down low and, and fake it until I feel it. Or people think, you know, I, I, I'm falling into temptation. I'm, I've sinned and like Cain, I feel like sin is waiting at my door to devour me and I'm having a hard time mastering it, but I'm so embarrassed, I think I'll just try and go it alone. Anyway, I'm not alone, it's me and God against the world, right? I've got, I've got God. Yes, yeah, so did Moses. And yet he had Aaron and Hur with him. So did Jesus, and yet he brought his closest friends to pray with him in the garden when times were dark and frightening. There have been people over the years who tell me, listen, Pastor, I, I, I try never to call you and bother you, but I really need prayer right now. And they think they're being spiritual when they say that. They're not. You, you didn't want to bother me to pray for you? you? You didn't want to have me pray for you and you pray for me? This is what the Christian life looks like. When you are holding up the weight of the world and you look up and you go, why is it? This isn't the way the world is just a stick. Why can't I hold it up? That's when we need one another. Moses was happy for the support and so should we be. 
And we should be quick to give that support to others as well. Recently in our culture, the phrase thoughts and prayers has become kind of a punchline. Something people who don't really want to do anything say or tweet. And I have to agree, just saying or tweeting thoughts and prayers is useless. In fact, you can keep your thoughts and your positive vibes while you're at it. And if you're going to pray, don't announce it so much as just do it. But if we are praying, let's stop thinking of this as a cop-out. Yeah, 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 I'll, I'll pray for you, but is there something I can actually do for you? Well, the most important thing you can do for me is to pray for me. I, I've talked to people who are homebound, saints who've been so involved in the church through their lives, and they find now they can't do the things they used to do, and they say things like, well, yeah, I know I can pray, but, you know, is there anything, I, I, I feel useless, I can't do anything real. You know, it's because we've caused people to internalize in this pragmatic church culture the idea that prayer isn't doing something real. That prayer is just an exercise that we do to make ourselves feel better. But it has no real impact on anything. Now, it's good for us to be ready to help in other ways, not just to be praying. But I find that even if I'm looking to hold up someone else's burden with them, like Aaron and Hur, to begin with prayer is the best way. And I also find that the less I'm actually praying, the more I feel like telling someone, I'll pray for you, is kind of a cop-out and rings hollow. The more I'm actually praying, the more I say that and mean it, the more I understand that this is a true help in times of trouble especially. Just look what happened every time Moses lifted up holy hands to heaven. And so, hold fast. Hold fast in prayer. 1 Timothy 2, which Lori read for us, we read, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands. And we often start lowering that staff just as things start going well. Maybe that's what happened there. Not only were his hands tired, but he looked and said, oh, things are going all right, maybe I can take a breather. In the church, we'll pray and pray and pray when a church is planted and it's just starting and it's struggling, trying to get its feet under it. And then once it's established, okay, we can kind of back off a little. We're starting a new ministry, the same thing. We're praying about it, we're praying about it, and then we kind of forget. And we think, well, all right, God, I think we've got this one in hand now. We can move beyond the praying fervently portion of this project. This happens even in the church. And yet, the, the success of the church depends on the prayers of the saints. Matthew Henry said the church's cause is more or less successful as her friends are more or less strong in faith and fervent in prayer. And so, you can see a church that it looks from the outside like the church in Sardis in Revelation 2, like it's thriving, and yet you look closer and it is just cogs and gears and wheels moving and there's no life in it because there's no prayer undergirding it. A church needs volunteers to run, but it needs the fervent prayer of righteous men and women to truly glorify God and find real spiritual success, lift up the name of Christ in the world among the nations. And where people pray, they are changed so that now they want to go and give of themselves anyway, not via twisted arms or a sense of guilt, but compelled from within by the renewed desires of their hearts. It's hard for us to remember, but Moses was just a man. 
He'd been 40 years an obscure shepherd in the middle of nowhere when God appeared to him in the burning bush and called him to this great mission. And as God helped him in his weakness, he will help us. As we lift our hands to heaven in the same way as, as Moses did until the going down of the sun, that should be our goal, until the evening of this life is over, we are lifting up our hands to God for help in every area of our lives. And we can trust that as our arms get tired and we begin to falter, God has given us many brothers and sisters in faith that we can call upon to come and bear the burden with us. And we can know that when even brothers and sisters fail us, that he will not. With a mighty hand and outstretched arm, he saved the people from Egypt. And with two outstretched arms, his mighty hands were pierced by nails. And he died on a cross for our sins to save us from death and the wrath of God against transgression. We know that our God will not fail us. We know that we don't have to trust in a, a, a magic staff or a, a ritual here or there, but that our God is with us. And when we come to the Lord's table together, we're reminded that a God who can save is the only kind of God worth serving. And our God is a God who has saved, a God who will not leave us, who will not forsake us, and who will always hear us when we call out to him. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know that as Moses stood there and watched the battle unfold beneath him, he was undoubtedly overwhelmed by the weight on his shoulders. Not only the physical weight of holding his hands up, but Lord, the weight of knowing that, that he had leadership over an army, over a nation, and that there were people who wanted to come and pick them off and wipe them out. And Lord, as we, the church, walk through this hostile world, we know that there are many, both, both powers and principalities and humans who would like to wipe out the church of Jesus Christ and render us useless and powerless and moot. Lord, we pray that our response would first and foremost be to lift our hands up in prayer. Not for a moment, not occasionally, not here or there, but to pray without ceasing to pray knowing that you hear our prayers and answer them. That yes, it changes us, but also it affects what you will do and how you will allow this world's events to unfold. And Lord, we pray that we would, we would boldly come to you as we've been reading in the book of Ephesians, that we can come with freedom and confidence into your presence, that we can repeat to you the promises you have made to us and Lord, have what we will. And Lord, we pray that we would be people who are praying people, who pray boldly, who pray continually, and who know that we, we cannot trust in ourselves, we cannot trust in our strength, we cannot trust in horses or chariots or any of the rest, but we can trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.